Welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dowling, Head of Research and CIO at FEG. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insight on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. Today on the FEG Insight Bridge, we are thrilled to have professor, author, and practitioner, Jeremy Siegel. Jeremy is the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He is a regular on major media outlets like CNN, NPR, and CNBC. But Jeremy is probably best known for his classic investment book, Stocks for the Long Run. It is now in its fifth edition and is one of my all-time favorites. In addition to his book and storied academic career, Jeremy also works with Wisdom Tree Advisors on their fundamental indexing products. Today, we are going to tackle a myriad of topics ranging from the 2021 equity market outlook, the best approach to equity investing, to the future of academia. All right, big FEG welcome to Professor Jeremy Siegel. Welcome, sir. I'm happy to be here, Greg. Thank you. Hey, first things first, I I wanted to start a little bit on your background. So you you grew up in Chicago, northern suburbs. You moved to New York. You go to Columbia and you study math. How did you end up in academia and being sort of the the stocks professor? Since I was a young child, I always knew I was going to be a teacher. I mean, I never dreamed I'd be, you know, a professor at a prestigious institution such as Wharton. I, I was a tutor. I loved it explaining things to people. I I loved when the the shine in their eyes, when they understood something. And I I knew I was destined to become a teacher. I was very good in math. And I always started to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to probably be a a math teacher. But my interest in the stock market eventually led me into economics and into that path. Gotcha. That wasn't until graduate school? Is that where you kind of got the interest for stocks? Well, I started out as a math major at Columbia, my undergraduate uh, institution. I I went from Chicago to New York. I began to think that math was not my calling. I was good in it, but the abstraction that was there was just, I like something more concrete. And one of my fellow students suggested, Jeremy, try economics. And it wasn't until my junior year I tried economics. And let me tell you, Greg, Two weeks of my first economics class, I knew I was going to be an economist. I dual majored in econ and mathematics, then started my graduate career at MIT in Boston. I guess a relevant question or important question, you've been in Chicago, New York, Boston, and now Philadelphia. Are you a Cubs, Yankees, (laughs) Red Sox, or Phillies fan? Well, believe it or not, when, when I was growing up, I was a White Sox fan. Because my father was born on the south side of Chicago. And even though I grew up on the north side, which is, of course, closer to the Cubs, I adopted the White Sox. However, since I've come to Philly and my son, particularly my older son, is much more interested in football, I've adopted the Eagles. So as uh, I've sort of uh, given up my Chicago roots fan-wise and migrated to uh, the, the Philadelphia teams. Wow. I'm not sure what brings more misery, Chicago sports or Philadelphia sports. (laughs) Well, we've had our championships. And let me tell you, it was a treat of a lifetime 
uh, three years ago to win a Super Bowl for the first and only time. And of course, the Eagles career, I was there in Minneapolis with my son. Having been able to see that is certainly a memory. Fantastic. That's very cool. So over the years, I've, I've bumped into a lot of your former students, and it seemed like you have always had a great rapport with your students. What do you think makes a good teacher, and how has your teaching style changed over the years? I think a great teacher is one that has an enthusiasm for his or her subject and loves to explain it and loves to see students finally understand a principle and clarify a principle. Students are very sensitive. They have their antennas up in class. Are you someone that really likes to be there? Or are you just kind of there because you're just a researcher and begrudgingly, all right, I got to teach some classes. I've always just loved to be able to have the students understand principles. And to me, I think that what has made me a successful teacher through the years. Have things changed? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been very blessed because in the last five years, actually, I've been able to handpick the students that are in my class. And given that Wharton has already has excellent students, I mean, I get to handpick the, you know, the cream of the crop from the cream of the crop. And they are so bright and so intelligent and so motivated. To me, it has just been an absolute special treat. That's great. I'd mentioned earlier in introductions, I reread Stocks for the Long Run. I think I probably read edition one or two many, many, many years ago. And I sort of reread it. You're now on edition five, and I hear you're working on edition six down in the in a year or two. Is that, is that right? Yes. Yes. Probably by the end of next year, early uh, 2022. Yes. It was interesting. Originally, we had planned to start it early this year, but then the pandemic and I'm glad it, you know, I mean, now it's going to include the pandemic and what we've been through, you know, I think would have been sorely lacking had this been uh, completed before this year. So in a way, the delay is uh, fortuitous in terms of being all inclusive on the edition. So in the book, you do a great job of providing history and talking about stocks through different periods of time. And you really highlight sort of the early days of the 20th century where we had the Great Depression. We had all the inflation of the 70s, and there were generational scars. And you say that really set up for the equity boom that we had in the early 80s that really pretty much has, has continued to today. So we went from generational scars for a really long time to this more equity-centric world that we live in. And it feels like the Robin Hooders of today are not that different from the day traders of the late 90s. So in a equity-centric world, can stocks still generate the same returns when before everybody was like, just give me bonds? Yeah. Yeah. Bonds, I think, are going to be even more challenged in the next few years. We can talk about that later. But, you know, after the Great Depression, that scar lasted a generation. It wasn't until the late 50s. People say, just a minute, stocks, you know, that generation had gotten older, aged on, and stocks were unbelievable bargains and went all the way up to the 60s, 70s. And we had the double digit inflation, the oil crises and everything else. And then finally, when that was conquered in the 80s, another big boom that took over the markets. Then we had the bubble, the technology bubble in late 99. Of course, the bursting of that technology bubble, 9-11, the dot-com recession. 
until finally the financial crisis, which is, of course, the worst crisis since the Great Depression and the biggest stock market drop since the Great Depression. And since then, of course, briefly interrupted by the pandemic, we've had one of the greatest bull markets from the bottom of the market in 2009. And now, as we know, as we're speaking, hitting new highs in the market. I think you're right. I think Robinhood is kind of those uh, dot-com traders of 99. We're always going to have speculators. We've always had speculators and speculators often do overprice groups of stock. It is my feeling that the market on the whole is not overpriced and we can talk about that. I think the big change is how many people own stock today, at least 50% directly or indirectly own stock compared to, you know, most of the period where maybe only 10 or 20% of all Americans really had any stock exposure. So we sort of democratized the market, which is good because you want to have a stake in America and you want to have a stake in our capitalist structure. And I'm hoping that it becomes even more widespread over time. Do you think the general awareness, you talk about the democratization of this. I remember when CNBC first came on and now it's on all the time in any financial services offices in most banks. People are just really aware of individual stocks, Tesla or Amazon, more so than they were 20 years ago. Is that a good or a bad thing? I think it's it's a good thing. I don't want people to just be focused on a few stocks because I think that that could lead to under diversification. So, uh, you know, I've got to be in Tesla or I've got to be in, you know, Snowflake or I've got to be in Neo. I mean, or even if I own three or four, I always recommend that people have a core of their investing is long run, basically indexed, and then 20 or 30% of their portfolio play around with it. I mean, unless you're a real serious stock picker and, you know, think you can do 80 or 90 playing around with eight or 10 stocks, the average person could just have a bit. But that could be a lot of fun and following these companies. And a lot of these are innovative companies and where trends are going. It keeps our economy dynamic. I'm all for it. Just don't put all your eggs in one basket. (laughs) (laughs) So you're always kind of portrayed as and seen publicly as this very lovable guy, optimist. You've been right. Stocks have gone up in the long run. The only time that I can remember criticism is during the 90s, kind of late 90s, and people were like, Gosh, Professor Jeremy Siegel is such a perma bull. But you actually got a little cautious on tech. Right. It's interesting, Greg. You know, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in the first week of March entitled Big Cap Tech Stocks Are a Sucker's Bet. It was two days off from the absolute peak of the NASDAQ, which then proceeded to go down almost 80%. The Wall Street Journal actually told me a number of years later that it was one of the most widely read op-ed pieces in their history. And it was a lot, of course, being able to be two days off of the peak is dumb luck. And, you know, no one can really pick that precisely. But I did feel that it was wild speculation and warned against it at that time. I regret I did not have that foresight at the peak of the market before the financial crisis. I actually remember when I was on the set of CNBC and one of the interventions I was on for about an hour or two, sitting there with a co-host and uh, Joe Kernan asked me, he said, Jeremy, you know, you've made a lot of good calls. Anything you regret, I regret I did not see the financial crisis. And that was actually then more painful for me, 
that decline from 2007 to nine. But I did in March of 2009 become very, very bullish. And of course, that was the start of perhaps one of the greatest bull markets we have we have had. So with that as sort of a backdrop, technology today, we have the FANG stocks and they've had a long, long run. And these are real companies. It's very different than the pets.com of the late 90s. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they can't be overvalued. What are your thoughts on technology stocks today? Well, again, and I think you're right on the technology sector of the S&P 500. So that's not even pet.com or uh, in fact, the only Internet stock, if I remember, in 99, early 2000, that was in the S&P was AOL. Yahoo got put in, you know, also at the very end of 99. But the crazy ones weren't there. And yet even then you were selling 80 to 90 times earnings. So today, what are we, 30, 35, maybe? I mean, obviously, when Tesla comes out, if it's rated as a tech stock, I'm not even sure what sector they're going to put it in. Is it an auto manufacturer? Is it a tech stock? I mean, it's more 30 times earnings. We're nowhere near that. I'm not saying that Tesla is right or that a couple of these are not certainly going to prove always there's going to be some stocks that will not prove their, their worth. That's the market. But I don't see any of the crazy general speculation that we had in huge sectors. I mean, the S&P back in 99 was like 30, 35% of the market. And when you're selling 30, 35% of the market selling at 80 times earnings, you know you're at risk. I don't see that today. Do you see a more cyclical catch up and maybe these great companies that are maybe fully priced kind of stand still? Or what would you recommend for? People that feel like maybe they missed out on this tech run, should they buy other things or should they still consider an Amazon or a Microsoft or any of these other tech companies out there? You know, clearly we who have tilted towards value investing, and I have been one of them, have had a difficult time recently, to say the least. (laughs) In fact, by a number of criteria, it's been the worst 10 years for value in history. But I do see the so-called value outperforming the growth. And I don't mean growth is going to collapse like it did in 99. But the reopening of the economy next year as a result of the vaccines and what I think is going to be the pretty sharp decline in the pandemic fears, I think is going to favor those stocks. Don't, you know, I, I don't say get out wholesale out of all those tech stocks. I mean, they've shown us how wondrous tech can be. But I also think that looking forward and valuation still is very important. You can't ignore the tremendous gap between the value and the growth stocks that we have today. Yes, I think in 2021, value stocks will outperform growth. So you're talking about valuation as both a academic and a practitioner. What are your favorite metrics to look at valuation? What should the average Joe who's out there who hears about forward PEs or a CAPE or price to book? What do you use? I do not like price to book, even though uh, when Fama French did their original research, that was their criteria. I thought it was flawed back then. I think it's even more flawed today because, uh, you know, book value just doesn't, especially uh, intangibles that are now so big in terms of tech and part of uh, value. I like earnings, honestly. I like operating earnings, conservative measures of operating. I don't like gap earnings very much. Warren Buffett has weighed in on that issue, and and we can talk about it more if you wish, but I like forward operating earnings. 
as being the best basis on which to value stocks. Operating earnings, just for listeners who may not know, what does that include and what does it exclude? Well, operating earnings are basically, you know, revenues minus costs, and they do have a subtract interest costs, amortization, depreciation. It differs from the gap earnings because gap forces you to take write downs on assets, even if you don't sell them. But ironically, if your assets go up in value, they don't allow you to write them up. Warren Buffett has chimed in that he thinks that, and, and obviously he's one of the foremost value investors, and he has chimed in in his annual report and is called gap investing next to worthless in terms of how it gives you a signal in terms of buying. Because for certain types of realizations that are not part of the ongoing process. You got to talk about ongoing profitability and conservatively calculated operating earnings. They sometimes call it uh, core earnings or S&P as a measure also uh, to make sure that you, you do need to expense options. You need to expense a number of things, but it is on an operating basis and not on what is called the gap basis. I want to get back to value, and we'll put a pin in that for a second, because I think maybe this will lead us there. But one of the many hats you wear, you also are a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree, and they have fundamental indexing. So what the heck is fundamental indexing? Is it factor investing? Is it truly passive? What is fundamental indexing for the listeners out there? Yes, I'm a senior investment strategy advisor on Wisdom Tree and have been for more than 15 years now. To give you some background, the original index investing, and it still makes up the vast majority of index investing, is what we call capitalization-weighted indexes. That means that the weight of each company is how much the value of that company is in the stock market. One of the problems that I have with that is that if a company is driven up just for speculation, you don't change your allocation because you assume that the market is always right. And I think we have an an illustration of, of that right now in the markets. Look at Tesla. History will tell us whether Tesla is correctly valued or not, but it's going to suddenly become a big chunk of everyone's valuation. I don't think it has enough earnings to justify its price. I would like to, instead of weighting stocks by whatever their capitalization is, speculation or not, to weight them by some fundamentals. And that is the key of fundamentally weighted earnings. Instead of just market cap, you look at dividends or you look at earnings. And those are the two major factors that we at Wisdom Tree look at. And we look at how much earnings do you have relative to the market? And then we put your weight in the index on the percentage of earnings or dividends you have relative to the market. And that does mean if you start going up in price, but don't have earnings that go up in price, we will shade you to a lesser weight in our rebalancing that we do once a year in our indexes. And that is the nature of fundamentally weighted indexes. It follows fundamentals. And the two most important fundamentals that I believe that are the source of value in the stock market are dividends and earnings. And those are 
the basis on which we form our passive index products. And it's passive because it's rules-based and systematic. You're not making discretionary decisions on whether to include a stock or not include a stock. Absolutely. That's right. There is no projection that we say whether the earnings are going to be better or worse. We look at its price relative to its fundamental. If its fundamentals start improving and price doesn't, we will nudge up its weight in a formula-based way in our rebalancing. The reverse happens, we nudge down It is mechanical. It is extremely low cost. Our ETFs are very, very low cost. They're not as low cost as certainly just simple cap weighted, which has basically become a commoditized virtually one or two basis points. But because we do use, you know, fundamentals and we have our own strategy of how we use that, but it is certainly far lower cost than the vast majority of actively managed portfolios. Maybe getting a little wonky or technical here, but and we talked about value, and I know you look at both earnings and dividends, but if you do not pay out dividends, there are things you can do with those dividends. You can pay down debt, you can buy back shares, you can invest in R&D or buy in other companies. In a way, if you're paying out or maximizing your dividend, you potentially could be growing less. So do fundamental indexing lean more? towards being value stocks? Is it more of a factor bet or is it not really a factor bet? Well, you're asking some very, very good questions here, Greg. In some ways, I mean, I like both dividend and earnings weighted. In some ways, the earnings are the more pure form because they are driving the stock. And you're perfectly right. And in fact, in my book, Stocks for the Long Run, it looks like you read it very well. They talk about sources of shareholder value. And again, what you can do with your earnings, you could pay it out as dividends, you can reinvest for growth, you can buy back shares. These are all other ways to create it. So dividends have a special place because they are tangible cash. And for those investors that want income in in our low interest rate world, and we certainly can talk about that later, about where you should go, I think dividend paying stocks are going to be very, very important. But yes, the earnings are probably the your play uh, for uh, what we call the fundamentally weighted indexes we at Wisdom Tree uh, offer. And that kind of gets to the value question. And you touched upon it briefly, but boy, oh boy, it's been a tough time for value investors. And even the best and the brightest have, have struggled. Some have claimed that value is dead. They may have made some of the same comments with small cap here recently, but let's talk a little bit about uh, value. Is it just one of those things that Yes, it works over the long run, but boy, it could really not work for long periods of time. What are your kind of thoughts on value investing right now? Really, this is a key question. I actually hosted a big debate, a conference where we had Joseph Lakanashak, Cliff Asnes, and uh, Mario Gabelli, those three big names, opining on what's gone on with value. It reminds us of very much a position we were in in uh, the end of 1999, early 2000, at that peak also where everyone said value is dead. I'll never, never do it again. And then, of course, it suddenly came to life. What we've seen, there's been a number of trends that have hurt value in the last cycle and over the last few years. First of all, of course, the pandemic. The pandemic showed us how important tech is, and tech is generally not value because they're faster growing stocks. So we've had a tough sector before even the pandemic and the pandemic just pushed it way, way extreme. Some say that valuations are even more extreme than what we saw in 1999-2000. Now, not in terms of, as I mentioned, growth stocks are nowhere near as overvalued, but the relative status of value and growth 
is at extremes that rival, if not exceed, what we saw in 2000. The, the rise of tech as a huge sector, the problems of financials and energy stocks, long value stocks, have also hurt the value going forward. You know, we put Amazon now in consumer discretionary. Is it a tech or not? Is Tesla a tech or not? As it moves to the S&P, there's a lot of blends going on. Some people say we're in a different world, that in past we've had cycles. You said something very important in your question. This is something that I noticed from the very first edition of Stocks for the Long Run. These factors, small versus large, value versus growth, they have long runs in the market and then go fallow for a long period. I pointed out in the very first edition talks of the long run, the small stocks rallied 1975 to 83 and then really didn't do very much until just a few years ago. Same thing with value. Value does still outperform growth over the you know, last 75 years, but it goes fallow over long periods of time and challenges investors. It did up until 1999, 2000, before it burst on the scene. And it is right now. Is it also at the turning point? So again, those people who follow value investing, they think, oh yeah, I have a one to 2% edge every year. No, you don't. You're going to fall behind maybe two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten 10 years. And then you're going to burst ahead when everyone's given up. This is the patience that is required from long-term investors. And it goes not only in terms of the type of stock that you buy, but also just holding stocks itself. How many people I know abandoned stocks in March because of the panic we saw, only to see one of the greatest rallies in history over the last nine months? Well, to follow up on that, I mean, there's always, it's different this time. And you talked about intangibles on value, and at least on price to book. So I won't go back into that. But on small cap, the argument that I hear, and it seems credible to some degree, is that, well, look, there is so much private equity money out there that companies are staying private longer. They don't have to deal with the regulation. And when they finally IPO, these aren't small cap stocks. These are sometimes mega cap stocks. Yeah. And so the ecosystem has changed. Is small cap junkier than it has been in the past? Do you think that has any relevance today? I think that's a very interesting point that you make. Let me elaborate on that. We all know the number of listed stocks is shrinking. We all know new companies are not choosing to go public. And I think that is a terrible loss. I believe that a lot of that goes all the way back to Sarbanes-Oxley, which you know followed Enron. And, and I believe we needed reforms. But it is very burdensome for companies to go public today. They stay private when you don't have to abide by all the regulations. And, and then they're bought up. And then as a result, you only come in as mega cap. I think this is a big loss to our society. We at Wisdom Tree went public very early. Our CEO, Jonathan Steinberg, has often said that we were able to get financing at critical times because of it. And I think other companies would too. But we need to re-incentivize small companies and new companies to list. And that is public policy that we need to do. Does that mean that small stocks are dead? We've had, listen, Russell 2000 is not on a new high as, as we speak, a tremendous recovery. Oftentimes, these so-called fallen angels, which are, you say that the new companies aren't the small companies anymore. Sometimes they fall too much and they're rebought and re-envisioned. 
I mean, uh, you know, a lot of companies have fallen fallow and reinvent themselves. So I don't give up on them just because they've gone down. Look at how many years Apple was nothing until Steve Jobs took it back over. There's a lot of times when those fallen angels get reimagined and they're not always going to be worthless and don't touch them. Even with the difference in the composition of those stocks doesn't necessarily argue that you should abandon them going forward. But I completely buy and accept the fact that we have a different group of stocks that occupy that space. And we need as a country to re-incentivize small companies to list on exchanges. In that same category, is it different this time? In your book, you talk a lot about the equity risk premium and how it ebbs and flows, but returns have been pretty good over a long, long period of time. Pretty good. Great. That's an understatement. Let's talk a little bit about that. If you want, you can ask me on the future of, of those returns. I was going to ask you about the Fed and quantitative easing. Oh, yeah. We've never had rates maybe at one point in time in our history, but not to the extent of what we're seeing now in terms of the short-term rates really being anchored to almost zero and negative in some other parts of the world. What does that do to the equity risk premium? Well, this is really good. And of course, these are some of the broad issues I do study a lot. We do have absolutely record low interest rates. We've never seen a long bond at less than 1% ever. We've seen short-term rates near zero, but not as prolonged as today. We've never seen really negative rates like we have in Europe. This is unprecedented. Let me say, and I've been saying this for years, that the major reason for low rates is not the Fed or central banks. It is demographic forces, a population aging, risk aversion of investors that, that have demanded bonds that are now held as diversifiers because they're equity risk hedgers. We use some technical language, the negative beta of bonds, which means that treasury bonds act as cushions in people's portfolio, has given them vast holdings demand that they never had before. And this has brought down their yield. A low inflation, of course, also helps on that. So we're going to have low interest rates for a long time. And low interest rates are a positive factor for stock valuation. They are one, but not the only reason. One reason why I think that price earnings ratios, which I mentioned earlier, are my principal way of looking at stock returns, are going to be higher in the future than we have historically experienced them in the past. What does a 60-40 investor do then? If you have low bond rates. I think a 60-40 investor has got to shift to a higher stock allocation. 80-20, 70-30? I think bonds are not good investments today. You're going to be double whammy, I believe, on bonds. First, I think we're going to have more inflation next year and the year after. And second, I think that interest rates are going to start rising on long term. And therefore, you're going to be fixed. If you hold a long-term bond, you're going to have capital losses today. So you won't be able to roll up into those higher yields because your current bond will go down. I think those are going to be the worst investments going forward. You've got to go. And if you want income, you've got to go to dividend-paying stocks as a source of your income going forward. So if you go 60-40 to 70-30, 80-20, whatever that mix is to get that same type of return, you're doing it with more risk, at least in terms of volatility. Are investors just going to have to accept more volatility if they hold more stocks? Well, this is the very interesting thing. I'm really glad you brought that up. We at Wisdom Tree have done a lot of research on this. 
Even before the pandemic, we looked at stock bond portfolios and we compared the 75-25 portfolio with the traditional 60-40. Normally, people move going higher in stock and as they say, they accept higher risk. If they've got a retirement portfolio, they worry about, well, if we've got some bad days in the market, that means that I might run out of money. I won't have my draw every year. And that becomes an inhibition to moving towards a more aggressive portfolio. But guess what? With bond yields so very low, we found that using, we we did what's called Monte Carlo techniques. That's a statistical term. We used historical returns and ran thousands of scenarios using actual returns in the stock and the bond market. And we found that under today's returns, that actually an investor has a lower probability of running out of money in his or her retirement portfolio with a 75-25 stock allocation than with a 60-40. And the reason is you're getting so low return, you're going to have to start selling your stocks. If you were in more dividend-paying stocks, you wouldn't have to sell as much. So even if you risk a bad bear market, the probability of running out is actually greater with the 60-40 portfolio. And that is, I think, a startling but critical discovery that I think will lead people to putting more, shall we say, conservative dividend-paying stocks instead of zero-paying bonds into their retirement and long-term portfolio. So bonds have done well, especially government bonds in sort of deflationary shocks and do poorly when we have inflation. We just haven't had inflation in a long time. So if you're talking about an inflationary shock, stocks do better, but only up to a point, right? Yes. Stocks do very well in a moderate inflationary environment, such as I think. I think we actually might have three or four percent inflation, Greg, over the next several years. Again, nothing like what we saw in the 70s and early 80s, but much above what we've experienced over the last two decades. That's actually a a sweet point for stocks. Moderate inflation is great for stocks. It is terrible for bonds. High inflation is not good for either stocks or bonds. And I don't think we're going to have high inflation. But the moderate inflation scenario that I've envisioned, I think, is going to be a positive for the stock market in the next several years. Swinging back to academia and your teaching, you have this classroom full of these eager students just soaking up all the wisdom that you give them. I imagine each and every one of them wants to be in the investment industry. When we have some trends, such as this wave of passivity that continues, and then on the other end, we have supercomputers and high-speed trading. Will humans really pick stocks 10 years from now? What are these kids going to do that are in your class? Absolutely. Human beings are so very important. Listen, economics is a social science. Human emotion is part of it understanding innovation, trends, seeing the big picture. Computers have a very hard time of doing it. They're very mechanical. They follow past patterns. And when there's a new pattern developing, it's not going to be the computer that's going to see it first. It's going to be human beings that understand history and the scope. And they're still going to be critically important. And they're still going to be stock pickers. We still need them. They cannot disappear. We cannot go to all indexing. We will not go to all indexing. There will always be a role for stock pickers in the economy. 
I don't think we've got too much indexing now, though, because I still think stock pickers after fees still do not generally match these passive indexes. But people tell me, can we go to 100% indexing? And the answer is absolutely not. We still have to have people that see what companies are worth and place valuations on individual firms. What are some important skills? I agree with you. I would guess we'll have less of them because we'll have machines that help us build spreadsheets better, but that human intuition, human judgment is you can't replace, but there'll probably be less of these people. For them to really stand out among their peers, what are other skills that your students or any students are going to need on Wall Street in the next 10 years? The most important thing is being able to think out of the box. And the brightest students are able to do that. You do have to be introduced to paradigms and structures in which to think about the world, but you also have to be able to realize that there is no one structure that determines the future and the world. So you've got to be able to say to yourself, wow, I see this as a new trend that's going to catch the imagination and is going to be important to part of behavior of individuals in the future. And you've got to be trained in the past to understand that because you've got to understand science. You've got to understand objectivity. You've got to understand statistics. There's a lot of false narratives, as we know, going on in the world. You've got to be able to identify those. No, that doesn't juxtapose what I see into science. But you also have to be able to think outside the box. That, I think, is one of the greatest things about America is a society that questions the orthodox. There's just not one way of doing things and one way of thinking of them. There are other ways, and we have to be open to those other ways. And those that are open to the new ways of thinking, of the new ways of seeing how the world might evolve, those are going to be the winners over the next decades. So what then is the future of higher education? Will we see a avatar, a Jeremy Siegel avatar teaching? Well, I hope there'll always be a live person out there. I think education will change. I mean, look at the Zoom that's going on now. I, even before the pandemic, we were talking uh, very much about all classes should be online of, of instruction and we should just bring students together for discussion. So the old lecture where you sit there passively will be done in your home, but you would come and interact with other students and instructors live. I think the pandemic is going to accelerate that trend. So education was already beginning to change and we're going to see changes like that. But always the demand to actually rub shoulders with those that have had experience and can think differently is enormous. You look at the best universities and Wharton has had a flood of just the greatest students from around the world, now global, not just U.S., which is something that I certainly do not think is going to disappear. Do you think, um, and this is sort of outside the ivy walls, but in this virtual setting, do you think we're going to have a generation that's kind of left behind, that this COVID generation that maybe doesn't have the technology, doesn't have the support? I do worry about that. And do you worry about even some of your students who kind of will come in? Will they be prepared because they've lost year, year and a half of in-person education? Well, first of all, I fully believe we'll all be back online in live classes by the fall semester next year. And maybe to some extent, even the spring, a year, year and a half. I worry about the disadvantaged students. The very young students. I don't worry about the Wharton students. The bright students are able to do online learning. Bright students often learn on their own anyways, um, to a great extent. I'm really not worried about those. The pandemic, though, I think does widen gaps between disadvantaged groups that haven't had access, and especially the young who do need hands-on. Zoom is, is a very difficult medium to be able to retain your interest. And those, they will need to catch up. But uh, 
I think it's definitely possible. I mean, listen, we've gone through wars in the past. I mean, look at Europe, World War II, a nightmare for four or five years. This is a year, a year and a half at most. And we've had food, you know, we've basically been able to operate. Mankind, humankind has gone through crises in the past and has evolved stronger as a result. And I have no doubt that we will be able to do so with this pandemic also. Those are some wise words. So thank you. I have been fully schooled by Professor Jeremy Siegel. So thank you. And buy that fifth edition book, but make sure you also buy that sixth edition book that comes out here in a year or so. Thank you very much for for your time, Jeremy. Thank you. It's been enjoyable being with you, Greg. If you are interested in more information on the topic, please go to our website where we will have a list of relevant FEG publications. And don't forget to subscribe to our communications at www.feg.com backslash subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Please keep in mind that this information is intended to be general education that needs to be framed within the unique risk and return objectives of each client. Therefore, nobody should consider these FEG recommendations. This podcast was prepared by FEG. Neither the information nor any opinion expressed in this podcast constitutes an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views or opinions expressed by guest speakers are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FEG.